So you know you're in trouble when the pastor has a pile of books up here with him. Romans chapter 1, we will pick up in verse 18 for the teaching. We'll actually read back verses 16 and 17 and then move on through. But before I start to read, let me just give a little bit of the background. Again, if it's your first time here, you missed last week. We're just starting our study in the book of Romans. We did the first uh, 17 verses last week, and now we head on through the rest of chapter 1. The book of Romans is summarized and highlighted by four buildings. If you want to try to encapsulate the whole book of Romans, chapter 1 to chapter 16, you can think about four buildings. So the first five chapters, chapters 1 through 5, are symbolized by the courthouse of God. Then the next chapters, 6, 7, and 8, are symbolized by the power plant, like Brimo power plant, the power plant of God. And that's where we see God's grace empowering us to live the Christian life. And then we get into the synagogue of Israel, chapters 9, 10, and 11. That's where we see God's wisdom in saving all of Israel. And then we see chapters 12 through 16 is the temple of God. And that's where we see God's will being done in the church, his will to transform our lives. So it's important for me to give you the big picture because we're taking it just in little pieces and you have to see how the little pieces fit into the big picture because Paul is going to wrap this whole thing up in a nice, big, neat bow by the time we're done. But you may leave on any given day with sort of part of the story, but not the whole story. All right, are you with me, church? All right, so where are we now? Chapter one, we are in the courthouse of God. So what should we expect to see in the courthouse? There's judgment in a courthouse. And what kind of judge do we see in the courthouse? When he's looking at the way people live and people's works and what they do, we're going to see God's wrath in the courthouse. So let's just read back. Verse 16 begins with, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writing to the people in Rome from the very sinful city of Corinth. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus, for it is the power of God to salvation, to rescue for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness or the rightness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We studied this last week. It is, it doesn't say in it is the power of God. It is the power of God to rescue everyone who believes. Rescue everyone, rescue them from what? Well, one of the things that people have to be rescued from is what we'll find in verse 18, the wrath of God. And we'll talk about that when we get to verse 18. But this rescue is available to everybody. And it shows the righteousness of God, the rightness of God. The righteousness of God means that God always does what's right. That's what it means to be righteous. God always does what's right. And he always does what's right with people. He's always right himself. Don't you hate when someone's always right? Maybe you live with someone like that. They're always right. We're self-righteous most of the time, but God is righteous because that's who he is. That's part of his nature. He's always right, and he always deals with people rightly. And so we come to this courthouse, and we're going to be introduced to, in the courthouse, three distinct kinds of people that are going to be on trial there in the courthouse of God. They're going to come and present their works. are going to be presented before the judge. Remember, the righteousness of God is revealed how? Not by works, 
but from faith, from belief to belief, not from belief to works or works to works. So we're going to see in the courthouse just what all of our ability to be right with God produces. Because we recognize, and Paul shares, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where Paul is going with this. By the time we leave the courthouse, by the time judgment is pronounced, we're all going to be in the same boat, gang. So if you leave here feeling condemned today, or you leave here feeling judged today, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. And the challenge is if you leave today and don't come back, you won't find out then how a righteous God deals with the people that have fallen under his condemnation by their works. So let me tell you ahead of time, the good news is the court of God allows for a substitute. Jesus will be that substitute by the time we get to the end of the court proceedings. But you got to keep coming to watch how the whole thing plays out. We're fascinated with courtroom drama, aren't we? I mean, we were locked to the TV when O.J. Simpson was on trial. I was paying attention when that guy, the runner from South Africa, the blade runner guy, when he was being accused of murdering his girlfriend. And now I hear there's a TV show where you can be the jury. It's like the new reality TV show I just heard about where they hear these court cases and then I guess the audience kind of phones in and helps make the decision. No thank you for that. (laughs) I'm not sure. People are tough. I think sometimes people are tougher than God. And that's what we're going to deal with. So the first person, the first person that comes into the courtroom is the person who tries to excuse themselves from guilt because they say they didn't know God. So we'll call that the ignorant person. Not ignorant as in stupid, ignorant as in, I don't know anything about God. That's what they would claim. So therefore I should be immune from any judgment of God. The second person that would come in would be the self-righteous person. This is a person who knows right from wrong. The problem is they don't do it. And then the third person that comes in is the religious person, the person that has all of the, the rituals and the Jewish person, you could say, the religious person. And we'll see what God says about that. So are you with me in the big picture? So where are we, church? We're in the courthouse. And who's the first person we're going to see? The first person that's coming into the courthouse is the person who is? All right, you guys are ready. So the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that's important because we need to know how to have this right relationship with God. Because right now, the anger or the wrath of God, verse 18 tells us, the wrath of God is revealed now, not future, now from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19 says, because what may be known of God is manifest or made known in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Isn't that interesting? What's invisible can clearly be seen. And be understood, being understood by the things that are made. Hey, that's us. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, who are they? They that are suppressing the truth. They that claim to be ignorant. They are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So we'll stop right there. That's kind of the list of the evidences, the proofs regarding this person who claims ignorance. God says, first of all, uh, verse 18 again says that the wrath of God is revealed. 
What's the wrath of God revealed against? Did you read it there? It doesn't say the wrath of God is revealed against men. Does it? It says the wrath of God is revealed against all, notice that, all, all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, God loves men, or we couldn't have John 3.16. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. That's why God did what he did in sending Jesus to be that substitute for us. God loves people. Don't ever let anybody tell you any different. God loves you. God loves your neighbor. God loves your boss. Sometimes it's hard for you to love them, but God loves them. God loves some people that you might really not think very much of. But what God gets angry about, or his wrath, is against ungodliness, meaning wrong way to treat God, and unrighteousness, wrong way to treat people. That's the commandments summed up. Love God, love your neighbor, we break those. Ungodliness, wrong in the way we treat God. Unrighteousness, wrong in the way we treat man. And because God is just, meaning he's right, he's righteous, then his wrath is not like your wrath. We've experienced wrath. Have you ever experienced somebody's wrath? I mean, they've just, they've just blown up on you. Someone, something you did at work or something someone said, and they just blow up on you or they just lose it. They're losing it. And their face turns red and their veins pop out. And you're like, whoa, you know, settle down. It's emotional. It's uh, selfish. Oftentimes that's the wrath we think about. But the wrath of God is different. Because we're going to find out later on in the chapter that God's response is not in the courtroom to just call down fire on people he's angry with or on the sinfulness of the people. That's what he's angry with. God's wrath is his very appropriate and expected response to sin. I mean, if he is just, he has to respond to sin that way, does he not? I mean, he's sort of obligated to by his character. I mean, aren't we glad we live in a nation where the judicial system is still relatively righteous? I know there's unfairnesses because we're human beings, but you could live in a place like Mexico where everything is corrupt. Everybody's on the take. Nothing is fair. It's a very unrighteous system. Therefore, there's no justice there. But because God is righteous when it comes to his moral laws and his moral commandments, then he sort of has to, if he says, these are the commandments, and when you break them, there's punishment, he sort of has to punish, doesn't he? He has to have that response. If you took your case to the court down in Palmyra, someone had wronged you, and you took it before the judge, and the judge heard your case and went, well, that really, that's terrible, but you know what? It's almost lunchtime, and I'm not feeling like it today, so you know what? Go on home. I don't, I don't feel like hearing your case. You'd be irate, wouldn't you? Because it's not righteous. It's unrighteous. So God's wrath appropriately is revealed. But again, notice the issue in the courtroom wasn't that the people were truly ignorant, right? They would say, well, we didn't know about God, and that's why we did what we did. And God says, well, let me correct you on that. Actually, you're lying to me. You did know who I was. Well, how could we possibly have known who you were? We don't have a Bible. Because remember, Paul is writing to Jew and to non-Jew. The Jews, they would have grown up with the Bible, the Torah and the Old Testament. These people would have been very familiar with the rituals and the rites and the ceremonies, the Sabbath and the Passover and all that relationship to God. But the Gentile nation, the Romans, the people that live in pagan cultures, idolatrous cultures, 
they would say, well, how could we possibly know? We didn't have a Bible. We didn't grow up knowing those things. But God says, verse 19 says, what may be known of God to someone who doesn't have a Bible is manifest where in them that God actually puts a seed in your heart of eternity, of understanding and a desire for God. It's just like a person, I've used this example before, if you've ever known someone that has been adopted, there's in their life, there is a desire, a draw to find out who their natural parents are. You, if you've not been adopted, you don't understand it. There's a draw to know where have I come from. And God puts in every human being the desire to know where they've come from. Not your mom and dad, but your heavenly father. And I've watched it with people and I've talked to people about that. I can meet somebody on the street and say, hey, I know you have parents. Well, how do you know I have parents? Because you exist. You can't exist without parents. I don't care if you were hatched or born or whatever you were, dropped off by aliens somewhere, someone gave birth to you. And your existence is proof that you have parents. And so in a sense, our existence is proof that we have a heavenly father. And this is exactly what Paul says. What may be known of God is manifest in them. How? For God has shown it to them. Well, how did God show it to them? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes, the things that are invisible about him are clearly seen. Well, how are they clearly seen? Since the creation of the world, God has revealed himself. The artist has put himself into the painting, into the tapestry. The potter has infused his own nature into the creation. Now, this is pretty cool to me because I love science. I love biology. And so God says that when you look around in the world, when you study science, by the way, many of the scientific pursuits many of the areas of science, biology, biochemistry, physics, most of them sprung from Christian people who believed in a rational universe and a rational God. And that's why mathematics works. And that's why the universe works. That's why we could predict when that eclipse was going to happen. How did they know that? Because things are very ordered and rational and they obey the laws of physics. So God has put himself in those things and these are clearly seen, not kind of murky. These things are clearly seen and understood by the things that are made. What's understood about God? He's eternal power and his Godhead. So I brought my little pile of books. Some of you guys know I was a biology major in college. So I grew up learning that uh, I came from primordial slime, that somehow, you know, from goo to you, that, that's the old idea, that, that somehow this soup, you add some energy and it springs to life. And I grew up like everybody else, just believing that thing. But then I got saved and I started to ask questions of the system I had been introduced to. The system that I have many books here. I'm going to show you two books. One is called Undeniable and the other is called Undeniable. They're both called Undeniable. They're both written from exactly opposite standpoints regarding why we're here and how we got here. This book, Undeniable, is written by Bill Nye, the pseudoscience guy. I couldn't even get past the first couple of chapters. It was so disturbing. I actually sent him an email because this is what he says. He says, at some level, as an altruistic human, and he says, a consequence of my evolutionary heritage, I feel bad for creationists. 
they have been left out of the wonderful process of science and its ability to reveal so much about nature. I'm heartbroken for their kids. On top of that, I feel bad for all of us. How did we let an ideological resistance to inquiry become such a prominent part of our society? I hope that makes you mad to hear that. He's completely and utterly misrepresented creationists. He's completely and utterly misrepresented the church. In fact, I love the study of science because the study of science points me where? Right to God. Right to God. And I've heard that over and over again from a variety of different sources. There's brilliant, brilliant scientists who believe that we're here because of intelligent design. And there's a difference between intelligent design and creationism, and I'm not going to go into that now. But so Bill Nye has the same data that Douglas Axe has in his book, Undeniable. They have the same data, the same observations. But then you get into the world of interpretation. Ah, here's what I see, observation, and here's what it means, interpretation. And that is where we depart. You see, we all have the same data, but how we interpret it is radically different. Here's a book called The Mind of God. This is not a Christian book. So I'm quoting to you not from Christian sources. This is by a guy named Paul Davies, the director of the Beyond Center at Arizona State University and best-selling author of more than 20 books. This is what he has to say about the laws of nature. So even if you don't know God, never heard of God, there's a world that you live in, and we recognize that it's orderly, that things operate according to a certain set of laws. If you don't believe me, try out gravity. He says, even if we don't know what the laws of nature are or where they have come from, we can still list their properties. Curiously, the laws have been invested with many of the qualities that were formally attributed to the God from which they were once supposed to have come. Now, again, he's not writing from a Christian standpoint. He says, first and foremost, these laws of nature are universal. A law that only works sometimes or in one place but not another is no good. The laws are taken to apply unfailingly everywhere in the universe and at all epochs of cosmic history, no exceptions are permitted. In this sense, they are also perfect. God is universal. He's everywhere. And he's perfect. Not only that, the laws, second, are absolute. They do not depend on anything else. By the way, there are many now that don't believe in absolute truth. Again, gravity, some of these laws of life, they are absolute. You may not agree with them, but you can't avoid them. The laws are absolute. They do not depend on anything else. In particular, they do not depend on who is observing nature or on the actual state of the world. Third, and I'm skipping some of this, the laws are eternal. The timeless, eternal character of the laws is reflected in the mathematical structure employed to model the physical world. What did God say he revealed to people? His eternal power and Godhead. Now, this is not a Christian book. This is a scientist who's saying, well, it seems that these laws kind of are eternal. Fourth, the laws are omnipotent, meaning they're all-powerful. By this, I mean that nothing escapes them. They're also, in a loose sense, omniscient, meaning all-knowing. For if we go along with the metaphor of the laws commanding physical systems, in other words, we say that the planets obey the laws of physics. In that word, they are all knowing, and we can predict where planets are going to be, where the moon is going to be, so we can land a rocket ship on it or a space shuttle or something like that. So this is just one book where the guy obviously says, hey, there's a connection here. 
The challenge is that in our day and age, we have this truth of God suppressed. Again, back to Douglas Axe's book, what he says is he says the understanding that we can't have just arrived here by natural selection and lots of time, he says it's actually so simple, it's intuitive. That you don't even need a science degree to make observations to understand that it's very intuitive that we know that we're here and it can't be an accident. It can't be chance because we are beautiful inventions. The Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. As a matter of fact, before I go on, this was from a TED talk I watched on a field that's growing called biomimicry, which means that scientists, engineers, architects are now looking to the natural world for clues about how to build stuff. Because they go, well, we build it, it falls down. We build it, it costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, it's not that great. A beehive is made of perfect hexagonal honeycomb. And who told them how to do that? How'd they come up with the absolute perfect and ideal shape? Minimizes materials, maximizes strength. It's amazing. And so the community, the engineering architectural community looks to nature to say, hey, how should we build stuff? And now this is what this woman said, Janine Banus, on a talk on biomimicry said, she's talking to her audience. She said, if I could reveal anything that is hidden from us, at least in modern cultures, it would be to reveal something that we've forgotten, something we used to know as well as we knew our own names. And that is that we live in a competent universe, that we are part of a brilliant planet, and that we are surrounded by genius. Don't you say amen to that, church? She goes on to say, think about springtime. Spring is just happening. Imagine if you had to design spring. Imagine the orchestration that would take place for you to design spring. Imagine the timing, the coordination. And she says, all without top-down laws or policies or climate change protocols. She says, spring just happens as if there's this grand coordinator, but no one seems to be coordinating it. And I'm saying, hello? And then she says this, what if every inventor at the moment of creation, they're creating something, could ask, how would nature solve this? Can we just ask the question and make the observation that nature doesn't solve anything? See, when you begin to ascribe human characteristics to something you call nature, you've now created another God. And this is what happens as people reject God. Did you see what Paul said? Look back with me at verse 18. The problem isn't they were ignorant. The problem is God had showed all this to them. The creation of his world, his invisible attributes clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. They're indefensible. The problem was that they, look back at verse 18, they suppressed the truth. The truth was clearly seen, but through elaborate, ungodly systems of thoughts and substitutions, we come up with an alternate system that poorly explains the thing God so perfectly explains. Matter of fact, the one thing, the origin of species from Charles Darwin never has succeeded to explain is the origin of species. Because the laws of science, the laws, not the theories, the law of science says that life always comes from life. You never, ever, 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 ever see dead stuff give birth to living stuff, ever. And it's foolish to believe so. The Bible tells me that God is life. 
and in him is life. And then he breathed the first life into Adam and from then every other life. Once there were cells, now they could reproduce. You can't have something adapt if it doesn't already exist. But the challenge is Darwinian evolution has been so successful suppressing the truth, holding it back, wrestling it down. You feel it, I feel it. We get marginalized if we say we believe in intelligent design. How could we be so stupid? Well, Doug Axe is a pretty well-known scientist, PhD, does work with protein synthesis. He says basically once a theory becomes institutionalized, it no longer is under question. And that's what happened with evolution. No longer can we question it or challenge it because it is what it is. This is what he says. He says, harm comes to science not by people hoping to find a particular result, but by people trying to suppress results that go against their hopes. We live in an age of truth suppression. I love science. And I think right now, as a community, our country, our world is more accountable than ever before because we have more technology and more insight into the wonders of the natural world than any generation that's ever come before. We can look inside that cell with a microscope and we can see the life that's on a microscopic level. I'm going to blow your mind right now. You're not going to like this. But did you know you have like 100,000 miles of blood vessels running through your body? That's not a mistake in what I said. 100,000 miles. Now, this is where I'm going to get you. Okay, hold on to your seats. For every one pound of extra baggage, excess weight, for every one pound of fat, it takes seven miles of blood vessels that are laid down to support that one pound of fat. We're all starting our diets tomorrow. And then once you lose that pound of fat, those blood vessels are reabsorbed. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And don't let anybody tell you that you're a monkey's uncle. For real. It's craziness. Can you understand why God is upset? The truth is being suppressed. So this is the thing that's revealed in the courtroom. So he says, you without defense, you can't defend yourself with ignorance because it's clear I've made myself clear. No one can say they didn't know. Now watch what happens, and we see the result of that. He says, because, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him, and they were not thankful. They sat down to dinner, and they had nobody to thank for that food that grew up out of the ground, out of that seed, that seed with the information from the previous fruit or the previous vegetable that had seeds in it, and life still coming from life. Science and the Bible are not at odds. They work very well together. Real science. No one to thank. Rebellious against God. Now watch what happens. He says they weren't thankful. Instead, what happened to them, the word became, they became futile or empty, senseless in their thought life, in their ability to reason. The word thoughts is from the word dialogue. Having a thought, a conversation in your head, like we do that, right? You guys, not just me, please tell me, not just me. We talk to ourselves in our head, right? You got a dialogue, and when God is not part of that dialogue, all of a sudden now, your thoughts, your talking to yourself becomes futile. It's empty. Just bad stuff to say back and forth. If you get isolated from God's word, you go home, you isolate yourself from the church body. Now you're just left alone with your own thoughts. How many know how fast you start to spiral that way? You need another voice in your head speaking truth to you. If you start with a lie that in the beginning there was nothing, and somehow something came from nothing, and then through improbable, Doug Axe says it's actually statistically impossible for us to get 
what we have from random chance and uh, natural selection. He says it's impossible. He proves it statistically. Not possible. But if you start with that presumption, if you start with a lie, you can never get to the truth. A lie will never lead you to the truth. And so instead, what it leads you to is emptiness. And that's what he says. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. You can add to the list emptiness and darkness. So we see actually, apart from God, we devolve. God has put us at the highest peak. And from there, it is ours to lose when we ignore the laws of nature, when we ignore the moral law of God. We do so, God says, at our own risk, at our own peril. That's individually and that's culturally. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. So they fell into idolatry. Well, we would never do the idolatry thing. Oh yeah, didn't I just read to you? Well, nature did this. And chance did that. There's two gods that rule our world, nature and chance. And they do a lot of stuff, don't they? And idolatry is convenient. Why? Because that puts me in charge of my God. When I'm worshiping some created thing, then I'm in charge. And at the root of idolatry is selfishness and self-centeredness and my own purposes and my own desires. And notice that they, even though their foolish hearts are darkened, their thoughts are empty, they're still professing to be what? Verse 22. They're professors. They got PhDs and master's degrees from all these universities like Princeton and Harvard and Yale, by the way, which all used to be what? Seminaries. Even today, the robes that you graduate in, those are clerical robes. Those go back to the days of the church. That's what clergy wore. That's why you wear those silly things in graduation. So by the way, the word fools, they became fools is the Greek word moros, where we get the word moron. I'm just saying, if the Greek word fits, Verse 24, now what's God's response? So we're in the courthouse. Now the ignorant man is now being exposed and he's sort of like, ah, you know, I'm exposed before God. So what is God going to do? Does he call down fire on them? Does he burn them up? No, he doesn't. It says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. You see, they gave up on God. So God's response was not that he gave up on them. Did you notice it doesn't say that? It says God gave them up. He handed them over. He said, if you want to live life without me, if you want to live life in darkness and in lies and in desires of your sinful passions, because if God is where morality comes from and we reject him, then all we're left with is amorality, not morality. I'll let you do it. And we're meant to see the consequences. So when you ask yourself, if God is so good, then what's wrong with the world? Have you ever had that question? If your God is so good, then why does he allow all these things to happen? Because that's the way he punishes us. Have you ever done that with your kids? Well, no, just stay back, honey. We'll let him figure it out. (laughs) He'll get it in a minute. (laughs) We figure out that, again, as I said, we resist God and we resist the moral order in the universe the moral order of things that's set out by God. If we reject that, resist that, rejecting the God, then we do so at our own peril. Just as if you were to reject the law of gravity, you might say, well, I don't think the law of gravity applies to me. I'm going to climb up on this roof and fly. For about 1.5 seconds, you'll be free. And down you will come. Why? 
Because whether you believe in these laws or not, they exist and you have no power over them. They have power over you. And to neglect them, to resist them, and the God who made them is to do so to your own destruction. He doesn't have to do a thing. He just lays his hands off and says, go ahead. And when you're done, when you're bent and you're broken and destroyed and discouraged, I will be waiting for you. He doesn't say he gave up on them. He says he handed them over to uncleanness in the lusts of their own hearts that now they're pursuing not God, they're pursuing their own passions. They're pursuing what feels good at the moment. And they dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 25 says, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So they began to be obsessed with the creation and not the creator, not the one who created them. See, if there's no creator, then I am in dominion over my own life. I can be who I want. I can go where I want. I can do what I want. It's my body. The Bible tells me that my life is not my own. I was bought with a price. Two different paradigms take you two different directions, produce two different results in your life and in the world we live in. And we watch how that happens. He gives us some more here. Verse 26, for this reason, this is why, because God is a gentleman, because God is not going to force love, because God being love means that he has to give people freedom. And if God in giving people freedom allows them to reject him, that's part of it. He's not going to force them. Not going to force you. He's not going to force me. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And in the same way, verse 27, or likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. Again, dishonoring their bodies, created a certain way, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So Paul says, as I lay out the evidence in the court, another reason God gave them up, another consequence of God giving them up, another demonstration of the truth of this, that actually the wrath of God is being revealed, is that by rejecting God, people also reject those laws of nature, and that goes on down to its result in the practice of homosexuality. Now Paul is writing from Corinth, a very immoral city, and he shows that the lusts of their bodies, now pleasure is the most important thing, and we recognize that as we look at the human body, we recognize design in the body. To go against that design is to go against the way it was created. By the way, you may not know this, you have 46 chromosomes in you. That's what tells you who to be, your 46 chromosomes. 23 were given to you at birth by your mom, 23 given to you at birth by your dad. They come together, you got half your mom's information, half your dad's information. The good half in my family was my half, the bad half, no, it was not. Um, when the kids are good, they're my kids. When they're bad, they're Helga's kids. 46 chromosomes. Now, they've done experiments on such things. What if it's not just about male-female? Can it just be about the amount of chromosomes? What if you have 46 male chromosomes? Can you still get a person? The answer is no. What if you have 46 female chromosomes? Can you still get a person? The answer is no. She says in her book, this is a book on epigenetics by Nessa Carey. Again, not a Christian book. She says, we don't just need a biological mother and a biological father because that's how two haploid or half the chromosome amount 
genomes fuse to form one diploid or the whole nucleus in a cell, it actually matters enormously that half of our DNA comes from our mother and half from our father. So even in science, they're discovering that somehow the DNA knows the difference. And God said in Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he's written that into our, even our DNA code. So what do we do with the issue of homosexuality? Maybe you've heard there's no discussion of homosexuality in the New Testament. It's only an Old Testament thing. Now you know that that's not true. I don't know how else you would interpret this. This is, he says, the result of rejection of God. This is where our society goes when it has rejected God and is moving to self-centeredness and idolatry. The church has done a terrible job ministering to people in the homosexual community. We have somehow elevated that sin above other sins. Listen, there's a list we're going to get to in just a couple of minutes that's going to go into all kinds of sexual immorality. That would include probably a much bigger one is cohabitation, sex outside of marriage. There's all kinds of adultery. You know, the place where love and care are supposed to be given in the home, there's all kinds of sexual abuse that happens. So we don't want to single out homosexuality. It is different, by the way, than same-sex attraction. You can have a desire, a longing, a craving, but you don't have to fulfill it. So there is same-sex attraction. I know people in this church have same-sex attraction, choosing not to fulfill that. Why? Out of respect for God and God's design, recognizing that that won't satisfy. Rosaria Butterfield spoke at the Liberty University Convocation. She was a former lesbian, lived 10 years in a lesbian lifestyle, was a college professor. She said, I helped create the world that we now live in, in terms of gay and lesbian issues. She said, I helped create that world. Then she got saved. And she said, I didn't get saved from being a homosexual to a heterosexual. I got saved from unbelief to belief. And that's what changed my life. The big question is, well, what if I was born that way? Nothing in the scientific literature says that people are born that way. Your race is part of your DNA. Your sexual desire, maybe, this is a confusing thing, maybe, somehow connected genetically, but you make the choice, whether it's alcohol, whatever your thing is, you make the choice to engage in a behavior. It's different than racism. The rhetoric of the community is to connect homosexuality to racism. I'm born that way. There's nothing that says they were born that way. And even if it did, weren't there others of us that were born with attraction to too many of the opposite sex? What if you're born with a propensity toward children, sex offenders? We say, well, I was born that way. Now, we recognize that just because you feel that you were born a certain way with a certain desire doesn't mean you act on that desire. What if I was born to steal stuff or light stuff on fire? How many of you had kids born to light stuff on fire? Tell them not to do that stuff, right? You've got to resist that temptation. One more thing. If you know someone who's homosexual, treat them like a human being, please, for God's sake. And I mean that literally. Ask them questions about their life. They're human, just like you. They've got hurts, they've got abuses, they've got rejections, and it goes a thousand miles to sit down and say, hey, tell me what it was like. When did you kind of feel that you were attracted to the same sex? What did your parents think about that? How did they treat you? It must have been hard. I had those conversations with a young man that started coming to church here about a year and a half ago. He's since moved away. Matter of fact, he called me last night, and I said, oh, buddy, you should call me. We're still in communication. We had wonderful conversations about homosexuality and the Bible and sin and all these things. But we were friends. He knew where I stood. I knew where he stood. 
And this is what he said to me one day. This is a testament to this church. When he was leaving, he said, I would gladly live a celibate life if it meant that I could keep coming to this church. And I thought, you know, church, we did something right there. We did something right. Because he knew he was loved as a human being, just like you, just like me. Nobody checks our sin card at the door, right? We're all working through stuff. And so we have to have that grace alongside of the truth. Verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, didn't want to talk about God, didn't want to think about God, God gave them over to debased mind. Notice the rejection of God affects your mind. It affects your mind. It affects the way you think. To do those things which are not fitting. So now Paul gives a list. Being filled with all unrighteousness, treating people wrong, sexual immorality, all kinds of sexual perversion. Again, everybody wrestles in this area. There are all kinds of problems in this area, not just the homosexual, but the pornographer, the guy who's into pornography, the woman who does the same thing, adulteries, all those things will be lumped into sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and evil-mindedness. This sounds like the morning news, doesn't it? They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent. Seen a lot of violence in our world. Again, why is the world like it is? God is so good. Why is the world like it is? Because God has given people over to their debased mind because they've rejected God. It's affected their minds and they live out all of their sinful behavior on the stage of the world. So the fact that the world is in such a calamity, I tell people, well, get saved. That's what God is trying to tell you. This is life without him. How do you like it? This is what happens. Notice, backbiters, haters of God. There's a lot of people that hate God. I found out a lot of times it's because they've been abused in church or been burned in church. So we got to undo some of that. Proud, proud to be out. Gay pride, we read about that. They're just proud. I'm going to do my own thing. No one's going to tell me what to do. They're boasters, inventors of evil things. Parents, you'll like this one. Disobedient to parents. How does that make it in a list with envy and murder? We know we live in a generation and we see kids that are less and less respecting authority. Kids learn to respect authority at home. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving. That's without family affection. Unforgiving, unmerciful. So there's the list. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know that God has to judge these things. And that those who practice or continue to live in them, such things are deserving of death. Not only do they do them, but they also approve of those who practice them. So it's not just about doing the thing but actually affirming those that practice such things. And we affirm sometimes, not just by what we say, but by the things we spend our money on. Every dollar you spend on a movie or a video game is a vote. And the media is filling our lives with these things right here. Rosaria Butterfield again, and I'll close with this quote. She said, those who cannot receive a blessing from God will demand it from men. And that was her quote. So again, I say to you, if you leave here feeling somewhat condemned or like this is a condemning kind of message, it's meant to be. It's meant to be because unless you understand the wrath of God, you will never appreciate the grace of God.